Thank you all. You can take a seat. Thank you. Amen. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. This is the first time I've been able to be up here on stage with all the twinklies and sparklies and stuff like that. And it's pretty fun. I, I enjoy Christmas time. I enjoy these weeks of Advent leading up to that anticipation, both as we remember the anticipation. I love the way that, um, was it the first, um, a little town of Bethlehem has that line where it says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus on that night, Right? The anticipation, the way that God's story leads up to Jesus, finds its climax in Jesus. And now even the way in which not only do we look back to when he came the first time, but we anticipate his coming in glory again. Amen. What a great time to be together. I look forward to the next few weeks as we get to, to dive in more. What we're doing this morning, um, we're continuing our series that we're calling Thinking Rightly in a Broken World. It's kind of based out of Romans 12, 2, where Paul t tells us to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, the way of thinking and operating of this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might test and prove what God's will is, how, how to live rightly in a broken world. We've been asking the questions throughout this series of if Paul says there in Romans 12 that our minds need to be renewed, well, then renewed to what? Like, how did God create our minds to operate in the beginning? What went wrong that's made it that our minds need to be renewed? And then what has God done in, and shown us in his word that makes it possible for our minds to be renewed? And so for the last few weeks, that's what we've been doing. We've been walking through God's story in relation to our mind. This, this aspect of how he made us, which is the way in which we, we interface or we engage with God and with the world around us and with one another. And we've been looking at what we see throughout scripture. We saw in the beginning of God's story that God created us with these minds that have great capacity to learn, but limitations. We can't know everything that we're limited both in what we're able to understand and what God chooses to reveal to us. Because we were created by God, not just with those limitations, we were created by God to depend upon him to continue to speak knowledge and wisdom to us so that we might walk with him in that relationship of trust. Those three ideas, hold them together. Limited, dependent, walking with God in that trusting relationship. That's the way that God created our minds to function. And then we saw a couple weeks ago, Spencer took us through the fun, not, not the not so fun part of the story in Genesis 3, where everything goes wrong, where we see how our minds were corrupted. That story of the serpent in the garden with Eve, where he comes in and tempts her to use her mind, both Adam and Eve, to use their minds in the exact opposite way that God intended. Seek after unlimited knowledge, good and evil, on your own terms, independently of God. You can't trust God. Don't walk in a relationship of trust with him. He's holding out on you. And from the moment that Adam and Eve bought that lie, believed his words, ate that fruit, that now has become the default setting in all of our minds. The way that from the moment we're born, what is native to us. I want to know what I want to know on my own terms, in my own timing. And if it comes down to evaluating what's true and false, that's up to me. And I'm doing all of it so that I might build my reputation. Not live to put God on display as one made in his image, 
Though I'm still made in his image, I want to put myself on display. That is the way that human society functions. And this is why our minds need to be renewed. Because that way of operating and living doesn't lead to greatness. It doesn't lead to a fuller life. It leads to deception and distortion, to, to friction in our relationships. As we all compete for everyone to see the world my way. How dare you see it your way? How often has that come up in our lives over the last couple of years? We need this transformation. And then as, as Todd showed us last week, what God has done to make it so that our minds can be renewed, he's given us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to, as he, said, he showed us last week from 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, this idea that what we need is not just new information and not just the right information. What we need is the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity, eternally existent in perfect unity with the Father and Son. We need him to renew our minds because, as 1 Corinthians tells us, the natural person cannot receive, comprehend, receive as truth what God has said. They are spiritually discerned. This is why this message that God became a man in Jesus, that he died and rose again, sits in glory right now and one day will come again, Apart from the Spirit giving us eyes to see the reality of that message, Paul says, it sounds like folly. It's a stumbling block. Seriously, that's what you're going to bank your whole life on? That message? In many ways, it goes back to what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. Truly, I say to you, Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see things for what they truly are. He says, unless you are born again by the Spirit of God, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot come under the good rule of God. You cannot come back into that relationship of trust with God apart from the Spirit giving new birth to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes that foolish-sounding message, removes the veils from our eyes so that in that message we see the glory of God and the kindness of God and the power of in the face of Jesus. I love this. There's a quote I came across from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Weight of Glory. This is actually the quote that's on, on C.S. Lewis's memorial stone in Westminster Abbey in London. And it says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else that this is what the Spirit does. He gives us eyes to see the glory of who Jesus is, and because we see that, now we can begin to see everything else differently in light of Jesus. That gets at the heart of what we're driving after in this series, to think rightly in a broken world. It's not just a matter of seeing Jesus, but through Jesus, seeing life differently. Amen? Does that make sense? Okay. Here's what he's saying. In many ways, what, what, what C.S. Lewis says here fits what, what Paul himself describes of the way that the Spirit works in our lives in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this. He puts it on par with what God did in the beginning in Genesis 1 when he said, let there be light. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and it was, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
He shines that light in our hearts so that we might see and know that Jesus is good and then see everything differently in light of him. But it's not instant. I like the way that Lewis said it. He compares it to a sunrise. The light gradually breaks in. It increases. The darkness fades. The landscape comes into sharper focus, that we, we learn to see things differently over time in that ongoing relationship of trust, that lifelong journey of walking with God. Or the way that Paul puts it in Galatians 5, he says, if the Spirit is the one who gives us life, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, everything of that right there is just kind of summing up where we've been thus far. Where we want to go today is this, is to ask this question. If the Spirit is the one who gives us new life, opens our eyes to see the reality of this, if He is the one who transforms us by the renewing of our mind, how does He do it? What does He use? What are the means or the resources that the Spirit employs to transform us by the renewal of our minds? And what we'll see this week and next is that there are two main resources, means that the Spirit uses. The Word of God and the people of God. The Bible and the church, not just the the physical building or the the 501c3 corporation, but the community of disciples, the, the family of faith. These are the primary means that the Spirit uses to transform us because The Spirit, who is the one who renews our minds, is also the one who inspired God's word and who indwells God's people. So if you want to learn what it means to walk by the Spirit, you will pay careful attention to where he speaks in his word and to where he works in his people. Does that make sense? Next week, Todd will get more into that idea of the way the Spirit works in us as his people. But in the rest of the time this morning, I want to focus on how the Spirit uses the Word of God, how he uses God's Word to transform us. And I would suggest to you there are three main things that we learn from Scripture about what the Spirit does with this book that is able to transform us. And then at the end, after looking at what the Spirit does with the Word, we'll finish by just talking about what we're called to do with it. So the first thing, I kind of already said it, is this. How does the Spirit use the Word of God to transform us? Well, first and foremost, he inspired the Word of God. He inspired it. He, he, he gave us those words. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. Or you can look at it on an app, or you can just follow along with me on the screens. Here's what it says here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter is reflecting back and saying the basis for his ministry, his confidence in who Jesus is, comes from things that he experienced walking with Jesus. And he says this in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This isn't some make-believe thing. We saw his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is reflecting back to being on on that, that mount of transfiguration, we call it. 
That moment in Jesus's ministry when the veil gets pulled back and Peter and James and John see Jesus in his glory shining like the sun, the cloud of God's glory envelops all of them on the mountain and God himself speaks. He says, this is my son. I am well pleased. I love him. And one thing that Peter doesn't put in here that God says in that story is he says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Seek wisdom from his mouth. Walk with him. He's guiding you in the right way. Now think for a moment. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there at the transfiguration? How, how amazing. I think just like it was for Peter and James and John, you wouldn't be able to totally make sense out of it. But wouldn't you keep coming back to that in your mind? Like what kind of confidence would that give you throughout the rest of your life? I am not foolish to build my life on Jesus because I've seen who he really is. I've seen him in his glory. I'm not, I'm not foolish to bank my life on the fact that Jesus is coming back in glory to rule forever with his people because I saw a glimpse of it. Peter is saying, Yes, I was there and I saw that, but he's speaking to his readers, both the people he wrote to originally and to us, to let us know that just because we didn't get to be on that mountain, we have no disadvantage in terms of where we can place our confidence that what God says is true. Look how he goes on in verse 19. He says this, and we have the prophetic word, speaking of the Old Testament at that point, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's point to us, to his readers, is to say, though you were not there on the Mount of Transfiguration, everything that we heard God say about Jesus there simply confirmed things that God had already said previously in the Old Testament. Back in Psalm 2, he promised that this king from the line of David, he would claim as his son. In Isaiah 42, he speaks of this one, this servant, who would suffer and redeem his people. And he says, I am well pleased with that servant. Everything that the father said of Jesus at the transfiguration just confirms what God himself spoke. It actually gives us more confidence that this Bible that we have is trustworthy because we see that these are not mere human words. See what he says there at the end? Yes, men spoke, but they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along is pretty fun. In, in other places in Greek, it's used to describe the way that a, the wind fills the sails of a sailing ship and carries it along the water. He says, that's what this was like. Not only that, I think Peter's got a little bit of like a double meaning going on here because the spirit, the word spirit can also be translated as wind or breath. So what he's saying is the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, if you will, filled the sails of these men and carried them along so that what they wrote out of their each unique personality, experience, vocabulary, writing style, all of it, he carried them along as they wrote it. 
Now, can I explain exactly how that took place? No, I can't. It'd be amazing if you could, right? But there is a mystery around this, this idea of how the Spirit carried these men along. But I would just say to you this, this is why we call the Bible the Word of God. Because these are not merely human words. These are God's words spoken through these human messengers. The way that Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is this. He says that all scripture is breathed out. Again, that word breath, spirit, breathed out by God and is profitable. We're going to come back to that verse in a little bit. But we believe as followers of Jesus, as Christians, that the Bible is the very words of God breathed out by the spirit so that we might know God and trust him and follow him. It is a remarkable thing what this book is. Now, go with me for a second. We're gonna take a little bit of a rabbit trail just for a minute or two, but I think it's helpful. We're gonna get philosophical for about as long as I can take it. Think about this. When we call the, word, the Bible the word of God, what is a word? I was thinking about this. What's a word? As a matter of fact, this came, uh, we were having a conversation in our sermon prep meeting and it was something that Bob Krejcik threw out. I was like, think about what a word is. And I was like, whoa, that's a really smart thought. And he started talking about the way that words, they're not, they, they, they're not the, the thing itself, the idea itself. They're a symbol to describe an idea, right? A word is a, a, a series of sounds, a combination of sounds or sometimes written symbols that correspond to those sounds that we use not just because we like fun symbols and we like fun sounds, though sometimes we do, but because those symbols and sounds are there to carry ideas from one person's mind to another person's mind. That the words, the symbols, the sounds are there to take a thought from one, the speaker's mind and translate it in a way, carry it in a way that the person who hears them can share in somewhat of the same idea in their mind. It's rather remarkable when you think about it. So, so if you have two people who have the same language, that means that they have a common library of these sounds and symbols that they can use basically to, to share ideas back and forth, to have the same mindset, shared understanding. Like, like think about this for a second. When I say the words teddy bear, close your eyes for a second. What pops into your mind? teddy bear. If you've ever had or seen one, probably in your mind right now, you're picking some sort of plush stuffed toy bear. Could be different sizes, different colors, different cute outfits. Maybe you're picturing that giant one that doesn't even fit in the cart at Costco that my kids always ask for. And I go, I need to add a room onto the house for this thing, right? <laughs> but same general idea because I say those combinations of sounds. If I ask you in your mind right now to think about how to spell teddy bear, some of you have already done that just when I said it. And simply by that, by speaking words into the, out, out into the air through the ears that God's given you, we can share ideas between minds. It's fantastic, right? Now, there's a whole other message I could give about the way that sin screws that up. And now we use words to tear down and destroy and we'd misunderstand and miscommunicate and we care more about saying things than hearing and all of that. But what I wanna do is I'll back up for a second and think about this. Think about again that idea of words as symbols that carry ideas between minds and think about when we call the Bible the word of God. 
That phrase itself is a statement of our faith, our confession of our belief that this book that we have contains sounds and symbols that carry thoughts and ideas to us that originated in the mind of God himself. Him communicating his mind to us. Again, not just so that we can think the same thoughts as him, but so that we can know him and love him. The God who speaks words that don't just carry ideas that bring worlds into existence. Who creates through words, who creates people in his image and then gives us the gift of words, both his words to us and our ability to communicate words back to him so that we might walk in this relationship and have that same mind. The same God who even when humanity rejected his word and wanted to find good and truth and beauty on our own, graciously continued to speak. Speak his words to his people who even if they couldn't fully believe or obey his words, faithfully thought, sought to preserve them and copy them and translate them from generation to generation, from language to language, so that we here sitting Simi Valley, the last few days of 2021, could have an incredibly trustworthy record of these words from God to us. It's astounding if you just stop and think about it. But we don't often, do we? We so easily go, oh, I know my Bible. Where did I leave it? It's kind of dusty somewhere. I gotta go find it. Ah, uh, you know what? There's just so many other things that like so more easily grab my attention. So many other voices I'd rather listen to you to because they kind of tell me what, they wanna, what I want to hear or they stir me up to get angry about things. And we get distracted and we get bored and we overlook the precious gift of God's word. This comes back to what we talked about last week. That we, what we need from God is not just the right words. We need his spirit to renew our minds so that we can receive and grasp and believe his word. Now, I guess you could say it like this. We need the spirit on both ends of the telephone call. We need the words that he inspired from God to us. And we need him at work in our minds so that we can receive and believe and be transformed by it. And that leads into the second thing that I want to hit on of how the Spirit uses God's Word. Not only does He inspire it, did He inspire God's Word, but the Spirit gives us new birth through God's Word. I mentioned earlier about Jesus' conversation with John in John 3, or with Nicodemus in John 3, about saying, Unless you're born again of the Spirit, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. If the Spirit is the one who does this new birth transformation in us, what does he use to do it? Take a look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you were already in 2 Peter, just go one book earlier. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at what Peter says here. Chapter 1, verse 23. He says, since he's writing to a group of believers saying there's something that's already happened to you. He says, since you have been born again, you've received this new life, this new birth from the spirit that Jesus talked about in John 3. And here's how it happened. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. He's saying this new life that you have isn't just an, another life that's gonna get old and sick and die one day. 
It is an imperishable life. And how did it happen? Through the living and abiding word of God. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, all flesh is like grass, it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, so do we. But the word from the mouth of God, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Do you see the dots that Peter's connecting here for us? The Spirit brings about new birth so that we might understand God's word through God's word. See that? He does it through the gospel, this good news. The, the, I would say when he's speaking of gospel, it's not only the story of the life of Jesus, his death and resurrection. It's everything from creation to new creation, from Genesis to Revelation. This huge story of God's glory and his purpose for his world and the people that he made that climaxes in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that leads to this amazing outpouring of the Spirit into our lives so that we might be transformed and renewed. That whole story of God's faithful actions in history, which we have record of because the Spirit inspired the authors of Scripture, the Spirit uses that same message he inspired to work new birth in those who believe. Do you see how central the Holy Spirit is in all of this. He inspired the word, but apart from new birth by the spirit, we cannot receive or discern or be transformed by the word. And so the spirit uses those very words to bring about this new birth. He breathed out the words of God and he breathes new life into us through the word by faith in the gospel. But again, like we've talked about, not usually all at once. In the same way that the Spirit inspired God's word over time, over generations, over at least 1,500 years, in the same way, the way in which we, he goes about doing this new birth work in us often is not instantaneous, but is a bit like childbirth. There's a process of growing, developing, Rustling. It often culminates in an in a intense time of pain and hardship until ultimately this new life is born. Every once in a while, you hear one of those crazy stories about somebody who delivered their baby so fast it was like in the front seat of the car on the way to the hospital, right? Anybody have that happen? Like you were like, you delivered or were delivered like in route to the hospital? My, my uh, nephew was almost that way. <laughs> it was the parking lot in front of the hospital. But, um, Every once in a while, you hear those crazy stories. But usually, it's a long, drawn-out process of pain and getting to the point of, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't speak from my personal experience, but getting to sit by my wife's side and have her look at me at certain points and say, I don't know if I can keep doing this and go, God made your body to do this. Just hunker down with him, endure. I, I'm right here with you. I can't share this any more than that. But maybe that was what it was like for some of you if you came to know the Lord. Maybe it was a sudden flurry of activity. God just interrupted your life and boom, things changed. Maybe it was a long drawn out process of study and investigation and wrestling with the claims of this gospel until this point where you said, no, this is, 
This is actually real in my life. There is new birth that's taken place. I can't put my finger on the date of when or how it happened, but I know that I'm different now. Maybe you're somewhere in the midst of that process right now. But the point I want you to understand is this. The word of God is and always will be central to the work of the spirit in your life because he inspired it. He gives you new life through it. And not only that, the third point, he grows us to maturity through the word. The same word he inspired that he used to bring new life is what he uses to to grow us to maturity in this new life. Keep going in 1 Peter. We were just reading the end of 1 Peter 1. Look at chapter two, verse one. Look what he says. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Instead, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you might grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's just continuing with the imagery of childbirth. He just said you were born again by the living and abiding word of God and he continues the image. The same word of God that the Spirit used to bring about this new life. Long for it. Crave it. Crave that pure spiritual milk with all the fervency and urgency that a newborn baby craves her mother's milk. Again, Peter's writing in the days before there was like infant formula and powders that you could mix with water and nourish a baby that way. So again, keep in mind the the imagery here. The same mother whose body protected you and developed you and birthed you, she now has the nourishment, the milk that you need to grow strong. And Peter's point, in the same way that the Holy Spirit brought about your new birth by the word of God, return to that same mother, if you will. Go back to God's word for the milk that you need to grow in this new life. Does that make sense? Crave it, long for it. This is not only how God brings you into the family, but how he grows you up in the family. But there's a certain point at which the analogy breaks down because we all know a mother's milk is essential to get an infant started. But at a certain point, the child has to move on to more solid food to go to maturity, right? But when it comes to the pure milk of God's word, we never age out of it. We never grow out of God's word. The amazingness of this word is that it's not only able to get us started in this new life in Jesus, but lead us to maturity. Look at the, we'll go back now to 2 Timothy 3. Look what he says again here. All scripture is breathed out by the spirit of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man or woman, the, per, the person of God, may be complete or mature, equipped for every good work. The word of God is sufficient to bring us to maturity. So he says, even though you grow past your infancy, keep that newborn urgency, fervency, longing for the same word that gave you birth by the Spirit. Does that make sense? Is that reflected in your life? But did you notice those words in uh, verse 16? Some of them we like. Teaching? Okay, yeah, there's a certain point. I like to be taught. Yeah, training? Heck yeah, man. I want to be trained for righteousness. Reproof, though, which just means basically getting called out when you're wrong. 
that God's word is profitable to call me out, that one's not as comfortable. To correct me, that's always hard to be corrected. To acknowledge where you're wrong, where you've seen things wrongly, and to walk in a new way. But Paul's point here is that that is just as essential. What we need is not just additional information. We need correctional information. We need to be corrected by God's word. That's an essential part of understanding what it means that the spirit grows us up through God's word. So I guess you could say this. Think of this book, the whole story of scripture, kind of like these things that I have on right now. Glasses, corrective lenses. I think I was in the fifth grade when I was squinting at the blackboard from the back row and my teacher talked to my mom and said, hey, you might want to get his eyes checked. And at what, 11 years old or whatever it was, 10, realized, ooh, I don't see very well. I need correction. My vision is blurry and it's not just a matter of trying hard. My mom took me to the eye doctor. We got glasses that I've kind of worn Ever since, at least at first, I remember the eye doctor said, um, hey, your vision's not that bad. You probably only need these at school and maybe like if you're watching a movie or something like that. It's like, oh, sweet. Because it's always a little bit awkward at first with glasses. So I'd sit in the back row, slip them on, take them off when we go to recess, slip them on maybe if I'm watching TV at home or something like that. It was an occasional thing. It was when I needed it, when I needed to see distance, right? But I still remember the moment in high school when I realized, oh, this is not just a when I need it, I always need these glasses <laughs> or contacts or something. As my freshman year of high school, I'm playing baseball, freshman trying to like, like get in good with the coach and show that I could play on the team. And I'm playing right field and it's practice and the, the coach is hitting fly balls to us and I'd forgotten to put my contacts in that day. And so I'm standing there, he's like, all right, Christian, this is coming to you. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna show him, I can do this. And I see him throw the ball up, hit it with the fungal bat, didn't see it anymore after that. And I remember going, huh, um, well, it sounded short. So I'm gonna run. And so I just run in, run in, and go, I hope this doesn't hit me in the head. And then I remember the sound of the ball hitting far behind me, hitting the ground far behind me, like way back there. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I totally misjudged that. And I remember the coach, it was bad enough, that he's like, hey, come in here real quick. And he goes, what happened there? And I went, oh. Coach, I'm sorry, I forgot to put my contacts in. And he goes, hmm, do you think you should remember that next time? <laughs> yeah, coach, I should. Yeah, I totally should. And from then on, I was like, oh, I need these all the time, right? Does that reflect at all the way you feel as you've grown in your relationship with the Lord? Again, in some ways, my prescription had to get thicker because my eyes have gotten worse as I've gotten older. They're starting to do that thing right about now. I'm, I'm getting to my late 30s where it starts to go the other way. So maybe, I don't know, we'll see how it goes. You guys can tell me how it is. But um, is, you feel like that sometimes with God's word. This idea that maybe at the beginning of your life in, with Christ, there's kind of this sense of, oh, gee, maybe a couple of times, ah, I don't know what to do with that. Oh, I should see what the Bible says. I'll put it on occasionally, like when I'm in class or watching a movie or something like that. And then as you've grown in your walk with the Lord, have you gotten to that point of going, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do without this. My vision is so off. My mind is so in need of transformation. I need to crave this like milk that I need to survive. I need these glasses on all the time because my vision's blurry. It's distorted. I believe that's what the Spirit is saying to us through his word. He says, I know you don't see clearly. 
Do you know it? Are you willing to acknowledge the distortion, the blurry way that you view yourself and the world and even God himself and address it? Are you willing to turn to God's words, not just as a couple verses a day to keep the devil away, not just as inspirational thoughts to help you on the direction you're already going? Are you willing to take God's word and learn to put it on like that set of corrective lenses to help you see more clearly? And even here, here's a really important question. Are you willing to put this set of lenses on first? Before the other lenses that you view the world through, your experience, your family, your ethnicity, even your gender, even your political preferences. Are you willing to take the time to learn to put these lenses on first to even give you clarity for the way you approach your gender, your ethnicity, your political preferences? This goes on first. This is key to what it means to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is what Spencer talked about a couple weeks ago when he made that comment that has come up a lot in conversations with people where he said, it's impossible to have a biblical marriage without knowing the Bible, right? It's kind of one of those things like, no, duh, and then you think about it a little bit, and you're like, ooh, that's, that's so true. How often do I run out first and then go, oh, was that right? Versus how do I look at this first through the lens of scripture? It's impossible to be biblical in your parenting apart from knowing the Bible. It's impossible to live biblically in any aspect of life apart from a growing, humble understanding of God's word. But again, this takes time. It's not, this is where this analogy breaks down. It's not like right now y'all are just a blurry mass. I trust you're still there. And then I put it on and boom, I see clearly. That's not what this is like with God's word. The word of God corrects our view over time as we, as we grow up in it, as we read it and study it and listen to it and obey it and talk about it together with other believers. In many ways, it's what Paul talks about that, that even Todd's gonna hit on more next week from Colossians 3, where he makes this statement. He says, as God's people, and dwelt by God's spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. Teach one another, admonish, correct each other. Sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let this word basically be the thing you, you, you soak in together as God's people. Again, Todd's gonna pick up there next week about how not only the way that the spirit has inspired God's word, but how he indwells God's people and the way then in times like this where we are God's people indwelt by God's spirit, gathered together around God's inspired word to worship God's son. That makes times like this incredibly important to our spiritual growth, right? We're gonna pick up there next week. But here's the way in the last couple of minutes, I'd love to wrap this up with you. Let me go back again to what we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Look at verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Do you long for God's word? Do you crave it? A newborn baby who doesn't hunger for milk is unhealthy. In the same way, a lack of desire for God's word 
is a symptom of spiritual unhealth. So, what does your current level of desire for God's word reveal to you about your spiritual health? Consider that. Pray about that. Again, Peter starts off this verse not by telling us what to do, but what we need to stop doing, what we need to get rid of and put away. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, so that we might long for pure spiritual milk. Because those things, they crowd out, they drown out, they deaden our desire for the things of God because they're dead set against it. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, slander are the exact opposite of the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit wants to produce in the life of those who walk with Him. Love, joy, peace, patience. So Paul says you need to get rid of those things. Put them away. We cannot hold on to deception and envy and bitterness and expect to experience much longing for the things of God. Paul's point here when he says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, is to say, look, if you have no desire or longing for God's word, have you even tasted his goodness? Have you experienced that new birth by the Spirit? Because if you've tasted the goodness of God, you want more of it. It is an insatiable appetite. So let me ask you this. What right now is crowding out or dulling your desire for God's word? What are those things that may not be straight up sinful like malice and deceit, but maybe there's just those things that, 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 that are distracting you. It's, it's almost like, um, it's like chips at a Mexican restaurant, <laughs> Right? They're on the table, I'm hungry, they're accessible, I can get them right now, it's gonna take a while for my food to get here, so one after another, after another, after another, until now my food comes and I go, oh shoot, I'm full. I filled up on chips and I have no hunger left for the actual meal. What are the things you're snacking on, the information that you're acquiring, the places that you're going to fill your mind because they're accessible or they're, 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 they're tantalizing or they're just, they're just there, clickbait, to the point that you have no desire or very little room left for God's word. In many ways, what he says here Put these things away so that you can crave these things. It's the same thing. In other words of what Paul's been talking about in Romans 2, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed. Don't operate the way that everyone else does. Is God's word transforming you, growing you, changing you? If not, what is if God's word are there corrective lenses that help you to see clearly, how often and thoroughly are you seeking to look through them? Does it come, even come close to how often you view your life through the lens of your favorite political pundits, through the lens of what your friend group has to say about things, through the lens of the algorithm that sorts your social media feeds? Are you learning to start here with God's word as those first lenses that you put on to help you see everything else more clearly in the light of what God has shown us. We'll have a lot more time to talk about these things. This is one of the main reasons that our church exists. But I wanna leave you with a book recommendation that I've found incredibly helpful. And I lost my clicker, so I can't put it up there for you. There it is, I found it here. It's a book I came across. It came out earlier this year, written by a guy named Brett McCracken. It's called The Wisdom Pyramid. 
It's been incredibly helpful, challenging, convicting. But basically what he does in this book is he takes the first part of the book and he says, hey, for all of the advances of the information age and the internet and social media and all the opportunities it gives us, in many ways, it just feeds our desire to seek unlimited information independently of God. It just feeds our desire to run after whatever next article we wanna click on or even think we have a good sense of the world around us because we read the headlines of a bunch of articles. And he says, those things actually, they work against wisdom. And so then in the second half of the book, he unpacks this idea of what he calls the wisdom pyramid. It may look a little similar to maybe the food pyramid that you grew up with of how you build a healthy diet of food intake, that the, bo- the base layer is the most foundational to health and growth. And do you see what he says there? He says, if you want to go about learning wisdom, that even the cover of the book is kind of worth the, worth the price of the book itself. Where do you go first for wisdom? What's the foundation? The word of God. Where do we go after that? The church, the people of God. You see that? That's, that's where we're going in this series as well. And I would just say to you, it's been incredibly uh, challenging and convicting. I'd love to recommend it to you. Um, if you're looking for opportunities or, or input on how to get more into God's word. I don't know if you knew this, but we do a podcast in addition to our our Sunday sermons where Todd and Spencer and I just sit around and talk about what we've been studying and learning. And part of the podcast that's coming out later this week is we just talk about the ways that we spend time in God's word, things that we've tried that have helped, recommendations of things that you can try. So if you're looking to build a habit of reading God's word regularly, spending time in it, which hopefully after this message, if I've communicated well at all, you're at least considering that. Perhaps that, that podcast could be helping to you as well. But let me go ahead and pray for us. We're gonna sing one more song and then we'll be on our way. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that it guides us. Spirit, thank you so much for inspiring your word, for giving those of us who have faith in Jesus new birth. And for those in here who don't know Jesus yet, Holy Spirit, would today be the day that you open their eyes, that you say, let there be light in their hearts that they might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you not only give us new life by your word, but you grow us to maturity together as we learn to walk with you in this relationship of trust. So we pray this in Jesus' name.